Saturday. Made it through another week. That's right. We survived another week of our now daily dystopian nightmare here in this great nation. But it is the Sports TV Podcast episode number 36. My name, as always, is Alex Dreamer, and we're proud to be part of the Outsports Podcast Network. You can catch this show wherever you can catch and find your favorite Outsports podcasts. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcast, wherever you look for them. We're there. Just listen to us, download, subscribe. You know the deal. Uh, no guests this week. You're stuck with me. Sorry, uh, but hopefully you enjoyed uh, the last few shows we've done to bookend National Coming Out Day, which was last Sunday. Two weeks ago, I spoke with Jeff Ruder, who is a professional soccer writer for The Athletic, uh, about his coming out story. Jeff came out as bisexual on Bi Visibility Day at the end of September. And then, about one week later, there he was, a newly, openly uh, bi sports writer, and he's covering one of the bigger LGBT stories in sports this year. Professional soccer player Colin Martin saying he was called a gay slur on the field, and then his team, the San Diego Loyal, forfeiting the game, protesting the rest of the game. So that was a big story. Jeff was on top of it, and I think we had a really interesting conversation about coming out in sports media and whether Jeff thinks that him recently coming out as bisexual added weight to his incredible reporting on that story. So that was a couple weeks ago. And then last week, I was very excited to speak with ESPN's Israel Gutierrez uh, about his coming out story and really about uh, how he's decided to live his life openly and be an open book and share some of the most intimate and uh, uh, details of his life uh, with everybody, including uh, the attempted suicide of his now ex and now deceased partner and just really intimate, deep, personal stuff. But uh, I was really struck with his message in which and what he said that really most resonated with me is that it's just more fulfilling to be open. And I totally agree with that and totally understand that uh, I've become much more open over the years. Uh, it's been a process as it was for Izzy. Um, you know, one thing that I keep thinking about looking back at that conversation and my conversation with Jeff and really through all of these stories we've published so far this month, uh, in celebration of national coming out day is just, you know, I can't imagine now that I am fully out and have been for many years, I can't imagine doing my job to the best of my ability while holding back such a huge part of my life. Now, granted, I mean, my job is vastly different than most jobs, even those in media. Uh, I was a full-time talk show host where it's all about personality. And now I am the deputy managing editor for OutSports, a gay sports website. So I understand that my uh, positions and jobs a bit different than most others, even in media and sports media. But Still, you know, I go back to Jeff and his coverage of the Colin Martin story, and we talked about this, but if he were closeted, I feel like there would have been no way that he would have been able to fully exert himself and be fully open and honest while covering that story. And even me, you know, I can speak from a place of authority here, over the years when I've been writing about LGBT stories in sports, players getting called to slur, uh, players speaking about LGBT rights, and just all these issues that intersect. Uh, you know, every year there's a few big stories that come up. This year, for example, it was Tom Brenneman and 
you know, there's a couple of others, Colin Martin, as I mentioned. Uh, if I were writing and opining about those issues and holding back my sexual orientation, it just it just wouldn't feel right. I'd feel like I was cheating my audience and really cheapening my viewpoint. I don't think it would have carried that gravitas. So I can't imagine doing my job, this public job, to the best and fullest of my ability without being openly gay and, and out. And and really just, you know, what, what still, what's so struck me about Izzy is he goes to that story about being in the Marlins clubhouse as a young beat writer and the closer for the Marlins at the time, Antonio Alfonseca, teases him about having an, an earring uh, too high in his ear in his upper cartridge and saying, oh, you know what that means. And then Izzy says he didn't even have the self-respect to keep his earring on. He just took it off. So worried about blending in uh, you know, nobody noticing. It's really the opposite way in which you want to live life. It is the opposite of being liberated. It is the opposite of being out. It is the opposite of being free. So, uh, yeah, hopefully you enjoyed those conversations last week, and maybe you want to listen to them again this week if you don't want to listen to me drone on and on. But I, I do have a couple of things that I want to get to. Uh, one is sports-related, one is not sports-related. So let's start with the uh, with the non-sports one. Um, of course, I think the biggest story uh, in gay news this week or LGBT news this week is uh, the Amy Coney Barrett hearings and not just what her nomination would mean for the Supreme Court, but about what she said in her hearings as she was asked a, a series of questions by Dianne Feinstein, the uh, senior senator from California, uh, about uh, her, her her viewpoints on Obergefell and LGBT rights and whether she would roll back a lot of these hard-fought freedoms and protections. And in her response, she says, quote, I have no agenda. I do want to be clear that I have never discriminated on the basis of sexual preference and would not discriminate on the basis of sexual preference. So, as you know by now, the problematic phrase that Barrett used twice is sexual preference. Uh, Hawaiian Senator Maisie Hirono admonished uh, ACB, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, later in the day Tuesday. Uh, Coney Barrett apologized, saying, quote, I certainly didn't mean and would never mean to use a term that would cause any offense in the LGBTQ community. Thank you, Amy. Uh, afterwards, in addition to blowback, Miriam Webster added the word offensive to its entry of sexual preference and added guidance uh, on when, on how to refer to sexual orientation after this came up. Um, and of course, there have been clips of Joe Biden using sexual preference in recent years now in the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg as well for you know conservatives and right-wingers to prove the point that Amy Coney Barrett was just speaking like, she was just speaking like Joe Biden did. You know, I've done enough podcasts with my friend Jerry Callahan to know those arguments. Donald Trump was pro-gay marriage and Barack Obama wasn't. When they entered the Oval Office, I know all that. But here's here's my honest take on it all. You know, I, I really think in, in listening to the to, to the clip and reading the quote, I mean, I really do think that the phrase sexual preference was was not malignant by Amy Coney Barrett. I don't believe it was. I, I think it was just a a slip of the tongue or B her not being aware that that phrase is a little bit out of date um, because it is. And, you know, but I, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily offended by it. I mean, I think that, you know, when people, when I encounter somebody out in the world and they use the term sexual preference, oh, I don't care about anyone's uh, sexual preference, you know, whatever. I, I, 
I don't think they're coming from a place of malice. I mean, I, I really don't. And I think it's a stretch to believe that. I mean, I, I think the vast majority of people who use that term are just using it because it's been used for a long time and they're trying to be diplomatic. And that's, they were brought up hearing that phrase and that's, and they don't think about the broader, deeper meaning. Oh, I'm saying preference. So that's implying that it's a choice. I, I really don't think that people think in that way. They just use it, I think, to try to be polite. And I think Amy Coney Barrett at her Supreme Court nomination was not uh, over, uh, you know, uh, purposely using an offensive term for LGBT people. Uh, I really don't think that. Uh, I, I do think that I am going to let her off the hook for that one. I am. Uh, sorry, but I just am. I, I don't think she meant anything by that term. Um, now, that doesn't mean that I am supportive of her nomination. I mean, I'm very concerned about her conservative record. I'm very concerned about her statements on a variety of issues. Uh, I am concerned that Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito have already called for Obergefell to be struck down in a dissent right after Amy Coney Barrett was nominated. Coincidence? I think not. Um, I am concerned that Amy Coney Barrett did not directly answer a question about whether she'd uphold Obergefell instead going through this circuitous hypothetical about how, well, you know, it's unlikely because the case would start in the lower courts and there's precedent, so it'd probably be struck down. I mean, do you do you agree with it or not? You know, I, I mean, you know, she goes, quote, I certainly was not indicating disagreement with it. The point of not answering was to simply say it was inappropriate for me to say a response. Well, I mean, that's just a yes or no question. Do you think same-sex couples should have the right to marry? Yes or no? I mean, she did express support for Brown v. Board of Education, calling it a super precedent and saying she agrees with it. So she felt comfortable expressing her agreement with that landmark court decision. Why did she not feel comfortable expressing her agreement with this landmark Supreme Court decision, Obergefell, the right to marry for same-sex couples? Why didn't she do that? Well, I, I, I think it's quite apparent because there's one in which she would not overturn and one in which, well, maybe she would if it did come in front of her. So... That's what I'm concerned about with the Amy Coney Barrett nomination. I'm concerned about uh, her record already. I'm concerned about what her appointment could mean. Uh, I am less concerned about her using sexual preference uh, in a nomination hearing. So that's the uh, that's a non-sports thing that I wanted to talk with you all about. I also wanted to bring up uh, this topic. Uh, of course, on this show and throughout Out Sports, uh, we cover the WNBA with some regularity, given the large number of... Uh, openly gay and LGBTQ athletes in that league. And I think it is interesting that when we talk about declining TV ratings, the WNBA and the PGA are the only two sports leagues not currently experiencing this significant dip in the United States. In fact, they're the only leagues experiencing an increase. That's right. The PGA Championship is seeing uh, its ratings increase by 3%. PGA Tour uh, non-majors seeing its ratings increase by 17%, and the WNBA Finals seeing its ratings increase by 15% this year. In comparison, we've seen NBA Finals ratings were down 49%, NFL ratings down 13% so far, uh, baseball ratings are down uh, in the regular season 26%, uh, early rounds of the playoffs 40%, Stanley Cup Final in hockey down 61%, wow, um, so... Derby was down 43% even, so just go on down the line. Uh, ratings have been taking a beating, except for the WNBA. 
which kind of flies in the in the narrative maybe of you know the NBA ratings being down and not being attributed to the embrace of Black Lives Matter and social justice causes. Though I would mention that you know you look at the digital media numbers for the NBA records were set this year. They had 6.9 billion video views on social channels during their bubble. 2.6 billion video views on Instagram. Uh, 1 billion video views during the finals across digital platforms. So all of these are records, which tells me that the NBA audience, its core audience, is shifting to digital and streaming and not staying with broadcast, which is, of course, what TV ratings measures, people watching on TV. So I, I think the NBA story is so much more complicated than just blaming it on LeBron James being very outspoken and other athletes being outspoken about social justice issues. I, I, I really think it's much deeper and more complex than that. Maybe that has a little bit to do with it. I think it probably does, but not the overwhelming thing, not even close. And I think those digital numbers bear that out. Um, just the audience is different and the way they're watching is different. And again, look at how sports are down in general. There's a pandemic going on that's upended livelihoods. It's upended schedules. There's homeschooling, working from home. Uh, just everybody's on a different plane. Uh, we have a presidential election in less than 20 days. That's crazy. Cable news ratings are skyrocketing in the meantime. And, and oh, by the way, I think to a lot of people who are not hardcore sports fans, it can seem silly to really dig into sports right now amidst everything that's going on. So I think there's a lot of factors there. But the WNBA, I think, shows that with its ratings increase, you know, you talk about playing to, playing to, your, playing to your fans and playing to your demographics. I think it is a much more liberal fan base than a lot of other leagues. And, you know, unlike the NBA and the male professional team sports, the WNBA can kind of build its own path here. You know, they were just founded in 1997. They may not be as concerned with appealing to such a wide swath of the populace. And that might be the best way for them to go you know, really fly the flag as this progressive standard bearer league that is promoting athletes and promoting their voices and their opinions on these social justice issues. Because if it was just A, you know, it was just A and B that if you, if, if it was a direct uh, causation of if you're outspoken about social justice issues and embrace social justice issues, ratings go down, wouldn't the WNBA ratings have faltered? Yeah, they would have, but they didn't. They went up. So I think it just explains that a lot of these things are much more complicated than they're led to be. But it's nothing new. I mean, the topic of TV ratings for the NFL and the NBA and, and tying them to a greater so social justice or political message, I mean, that's been around for the NBA for decades. I mean, I even go back to my lifetime. I was born in 1992. So I'm becoming a sports fan, early 2000s, Michael Jordan is retiring, and you hear all this talk about how the NBA misses MJ, and all these guys like Allen Iverson, and these players just coming out of high school, they're not, you know, they're not ready to take on the mantle, and people can't relate to these guys, and, and then you have the, the brawl in Detroit, the, the malice in the palace in 2004, and now player, you know, the fan, the average American is turned off by the NBA, he's turned off by violence, you know, now players have to wear suits to games. Then Commissioner David Stern institutes a dress code. I mean, so really, and since LeBron has really come into his own in the mid-aughts, you've seen a lot of that calm down. But it, it's it really, the NBA is always used as this kind of Roarsbach test of, 
of 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 how you view the world you know why are ratings down are they down because of the global pandemic and and, and a million factors cord cutting younger viewers because the nba has the youngest fans changing viewing habits or is it social justice or is it you know the league is has too many thugs remember that after the malice in the palace or you know the players aren't dressing properly or they can't connect with these high school kids it's just it's a lot of it's a lot of thinly coated stuff there, and the NFL too. I mean, most recently, you go back to 2016, Kaepernick's protests, ratings fell, a lot of debate about that. NFL owners panicking, and what happened in 2018 and 2019? Ratings went right back up, and that's including, by the way, you know, even in 2017, where there was even more kneeling than there was in 2016. Trump called them sons of bitches, and then everyone knelt, remembered that. So there really has been no clear causation of social justice movements in in, in, in in these leagues. There's been no real evidence that it contributes either way to ratings, um, but it's used as a crutch. It's used and it's used as a symbol. And I would always say, I mean, if you're a true fan and, you know, LeBron James talking about Breonna Taylor after the game makes you want to turn off the NBA and not watch him win his fourth title and, and just, you know, finish another incredible run and I mean, as a sports fan, how can you be a true basketball fan if you're not appreciating LeBron James right now? I mean, maybe you're not a fan, which is fine. But if but if you call yourself a basketball fan or a sports fan, how can you not appreciate LeBron, what he accomplished, and how can you not be interested in watching it? It, it just it doesn't make sense. So I also think there's a lot of performative outrage with that as well. I mean, guys like Charlie Kirk have threatened to stop watch the NBA multiple times <laughs> over the years. And my guess is, I don't think he watched much of it to begin with. So uh, there you go. That's uh, this week's edition of the Sports Kiki, episode number 36. Everything's used as a prop. 20 days to go. 20, 20 some odd days to go until our, uh, until our next election. And then, uh, well, and then none of this will be put behind us. And <laughs> it continues on for months on end. Uh, as will the Sports Kiki podcast. We'll be there for you throughout this time. Thank you, as always, for listening. As I always say, if you have any suggestions for show topics, etc., please feel free to find me on Twitter, at AlexReamer1 is my username. That, again, is at AlexReamer1. So long, everybody. We'll talk to you again next Saturday. Thank you.